Chapter 9 of The Lost Stradivarius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. The Lost Stradivarius by John Mead Faulkner. Chapter 9. John's recovery, though continuous and satisfactory, was but slow and it was not until Easter, which fell early, that his health was pronounced to be entirely re-established. The last few weeks of his convalescence had proved to all of us a time of thankful and tranquil enjoyment. If I may judge from my own experience, there are few epochs in our life more favorable to the growth of sentiments of affection and piety, or more full of pleasurable content, than is the period of gradual recovery from serious illness. The chastening effect of our recent sickness has not yet passed away, and we are at once grateful to our Creator for preserving us, and to our friends for the countless acts of watchful kindness, which it is the peculiar property of illness to evoke. No mother ever nursed a son more tenderly than did Mrs. Temple nurse my brother, and before his restoration to health was complete, the attachment between him and Constance had ripened into a formal betrothal. Such an alliance was, as I have before explained, particularly suitable, and its prospect afforded the most lively pleasure to all those concerned. The month of March had been unusually mild, and Royston, being situated in a valley, as is the case with most houses of that date, was well sheltered from cold winds. It had, moreover, a south aspect, and as my brother gradually gathered strength, Constance and he and I would often sit out of doors in the soft spring mornings. We put an easy chair with many cushions for him on the gravel by the front door, where the warmth of the sun was reflected from the red brick walls, and he would at times read aloud to us while we were engaged with our crochet work. Mr. Tennyson had just published anonymously a first volume of poems, and the sober dignity of his verse well suited our frame of mind at that time. The memory of those pleasant spring mornings, my dear Edward, has not yet passed away, and I can still smell the sweet moist scent of the violets, and see the bright colors of the crocus flowers in the parterre in front of us. John's mind seemed to be gathering strength with his body, he had apparently flung off the cloud which had overshadowed him before his illness, and avoided entirely any reference to those unpleasant events which had been previously so constantly in his thoughts. I had, indeed, taken an early opportunity of telling him of my discovery of the picture of Adrian Temple, as I thought it would tend to show him that at least the last appearance of this ghostly form admitted of a rational explanation. He seemed glad to hear of this, but did not exhibit the same interest in the matter that I had expected, and allowed it at once to drop. Whether through lack of interest or from a lingering dislike to revisit the spot where he was seized with illness, he did not, I believe, once enter the picture gallery before he left Royston. I cannot say as much for myself. The picture of Adrian Temple exerted a curious fascination over me and I constantly took an opportunity of studying it. It was indeed a beautiful work, and perhaps because John's recovery gave a more cheerful tone to my thoughts, 
or perhaps from the power of custom to dull even the keenest antipathies, I gradually got to lose much of the feeling of aversion which it had at first inspired. In time the unpleasant look grew less unpleasing, and I noticed more the beautiful oval of the face, the brown eyes, and the fine chiseling of the features. Sometimes, too, I felt a deep pity for so clever a gentleman who had died young and whose life were, at ever so wicked, must often have been also lonely and bitter. More than once I had been discovered by Mrs. Temple or Constance sitting looking at the picture, and they had gently laughed at me, uh, saying that I had fallen in love with Adrian Temple. One morning in early April, when the sun was streaming brightly through the Oriel, and the picture received a fuller light than usual, it occurred to me to examine closely the scroll of music painted as hanging over the top of the pedestal on which the figure leaned. I had hitherto thought that the signs depicted on it were merely such as painters might conventionally use to represent a piece of musical notation. This has generally been the case, I think, in such pictures as I have ever seen in which a piece of music has been introduced. I mean that while the painting gives a general representation of the musical staves, no attempt is ever made to paint any definite notes such as would enable an actual piece to be identified. Though, as I write this, I do remember that on the monument to Handel in Westminster Abbey there is represented a musical scroll similar to that in Adrian Temple's picture but actually sculptured with the opening phrase of the majestic melody, I know that my Redeemer liveth. On this morning, then, at Royston, I thought I perceived that there were painted on the scroll actual musical staves, bars, and notes, and my interest being excited, I stood upon a chair so as better to examine them. Though time had somewhat obscured this portion of the picture as with a veil or film, yet I made out that the painter had intended to depict some definite piece of music. In another moment I saw that the air represented consisted of the opening bars of the Gogliarda in the suite by Graziani, with which my brother and I were so well acquainted. Though I believe that I had not seen the volume of music in which that piece was contained more than twice, yet the melody was very familiar to me, and I had no difficulty whatever in making myself sure that I had here before me the air of the Gogliarda and none other. It was true that it was only roughly painted, but to one who knew the tune there was no room left for doubt. Here was a new cause, I will not say for surprise, but for reflection. It might, of course, have been merely a coincidence that the artist should have chosen to paint in this picture this particular piece of music, but it seemed more probable that it had actually been a favorite air of Adrian Temple, and that he had chosen deliberately to have it represented with him. This discovery I kept entirely to myself not thinking it wise to communicate it to my brother, lest by doing so I might reawaken his interest in a subject which I hoped he had finally dismissed from his thoughts. In the second week of April the happy party at Royston was dispersed, John returning to Oxford for the summer term, Mrs. Temple making a short visit to Scotland, and Constance coming to Worth Maltravers to keep me company for a while. 
It was John's last term at Oxford. He expected to take his degree in June, and his marriage with Constance Temple had been provisionally arranged for the September following. He returned to Magdalen Hall in the best of spirits, and found his rooms looking cheerful, with well-filled flower-boxes in the windows. I shall not detain you with any long narration of the events of the term, as they have no relation to the present history. I will only say that I believe my brother applied himself diligently to his studies, and took his amusement mostly on horseback, riding two horses which he had had sent to him from Worth Maltravers. About the second week after his return he received a letter from Mr. George Smart, to the effect that the Stradivarius violin was now in complete order. Subsequent examination, Mr. Smart wrote, and the unanimous verdict of connoisseurs whom he had consulted, had merely confirmed the views he had at first expressed, namely that the violin was of the finest quality, and that my brother had in his possession a unique and intact example of Stradivarius's best period. He had had it properly strung, and as the bass bar had never been moved, and was of a stronger nature than that usual at the period of its manufacture, he had considered it unnecessary to replace it. If any sign should become visible of its being inadequate to support the tension of modern stringing, another could be easily substituted for it at a later date. He had allowed a young German virtuoso to play on it, and though this gentleman was one of the first living performers, and had had an opportunity of handling many splendid instruments, he assured Mr. Smart that he had never performed on one that could in any way compare with this. My brother wrote in reply thanking him, and begging that the violin might be sent to Magdalen Hall. The pleasant musical evenings, however, which John had formerly been used to spend in the company of Mr. Gaskell, were now entirely pretermitted for though there was no cause for any diminution of friendship between them, and though on Mr. Gaskell's part there was an ardent desire to maintain their former intimacy, yet the two young men saw less and less of one another, until their intercourse was confined to an accidental greeting in the street. I believe that during all this time my brother played very frequently on the Stradivarius violin, but always alone. Its very possession seemed to have engendered from the first in his mind a secretive tendency which, as I have already observed, was entirely alien to his real disposition. As he had concealed its discovery from his sister, so he had also from his friend, and Mr. Gaskell remained in complete ignorance of the existence of such an instrument. On the evening of its arrival from London, John seems to have carefully unpacked the violin, and tried it with a new bow of tortage make, which he had purchased of Mr. Smart. He had shut the heavy outside door of his room before beginning to play, so that no one might enter unawares. And he told me afterwards that though he had naturally expected from the instrument a very fine tone, yet its actual merit so far exceeded his anticipations as entirely to overwhelm him. 
the sound issued from it in a volume of such depth and purity as to give an impression of the passages being chorded or even of another violin being played at the same time he had had of course no opportunity of practicing during his illness and so expected to find his skill with the bow somewhat diminished but he perceived on the contrary that his performance was greatly improved and that he was playing with a mastery and feeling of which he had never before been conscious while attributing this improvement very largely to the beauty of the instrument on which he was performing yet he could not but believe that by his illness or in some other unexplained way he had actually acquired a greater freedom of wrist and fluency of expression with which reflection he was not a little elated he had had a lock fixed on the cupboard in which he had originally found the violin and here he carefully deposited it on each occasion after playing before he opened the outer door of his room so the summer term passed away the examinations had come in their due time and were now over both the young men had submitted themselves to the ordeal and while neither would of course have admitted as much to any one else both felt secretly that they had no reason to be dissatisfied with their performance the results would not be published for some weeks to come the last night of the term had arrived the last night too of john's oxford career it was near nine o'clock but still quite light and the rich orange glow of sunset had not yet left the sky the air was warm and sultry as on that eventful evening when just a year ago he had for the first time seen the figure or the illusion of the figure of adrian temple since that time he had played the areopagita many many times but there had never been any reappearance of that form nor even had the once familiar creaking of the wicker chair ever made itself heard as he sat alone in his room thinking with a natural melancholy that he had seen the sun set for the last time on his student life and reflecting on the possibilities of the future and perhaps on opportunities wasted in the past the memory of that evening last june recurred strongly to his imagination and he felt an irresistible impulse to play once more the areopagita he unlocked the now familiar cupboard and took out the violin and never had the exquisite gradations of color in its varnish appeared to greater advantage than in the soft mellow light of the fading day as he began the gogliarda he looked at the wicker chair half expecting to see a form he well knew seated in it but nothing of the kind ensued and he concluded the areopagita without the occurrence of any unusual phenomenon it was just at its close that he heard someone knocking at the outer door he hurriedly locked away the violin and opened the oak it was mr gaskell he came in rather awkwardly as though not sure whether he would be welcomed johnny he began and stopped the force of ancient habit sometimes dear nephew leads us unwittingly to accost those who were once our friends by a familiar or nickname long after the intimacy that formerly justified it has vanished 
but sometimes we intentionally revert to the use of such a name, not wishing to proclaim openly, as it were, by a more formal address, that we are no longer the friends we once were. I think this latter was the case with Mr. Gaskell as he repeated the familiar name. Johnny, I was passing down College Lane, and heard the violin from your open windows. You were playing the aria Pagata, and it all sounded so familiar to me that I thought I must come up. I am not interrupting you, am I? No, not at all, John answered. It is the last night of our undergraduate life, the last night we shall meet in Oxford as students. Tomorrow we make our bow to youth and become men. We have not seen much of each other this term, at any rate, and I dare say that it is my fault. But at least let us part as friends. Surely our friends are not so many that we can afford to fling them lightly away. He held out his hand frankly, and his voice trembled a little as he spoke, partly perhaps from real emotion, but more probably from the feeling of reluctance which I have noticed men always exhibit to discovering any sentiment deeper than those usually deemed conventional in correct society. My brother was moved by his obvious wish to renew their former friendship and grasped the proffered hand. There was a minute's pause, and then the conversation was resumed, a little stiffly at first, but more freely afterwards. They spoke on many indifferent subjects, and Mr. Gaskell congratulated John on the prospect of his marriage, of which he had heard. As he at length rose up to take his departure, he said, "'You must have practiced the violin diligently of late, for I never knew anyone make so rapid progress with it as you have done.' As I came along I was spellbound by your music. I never before heard you bring from the instrument so exquisite a tone. The chorded passages were so powerful that I believed there had been another person playing with you. Your presenda is certainly a finer instrument than I ever imagined. My brother was pleased with Mr. Gaskell's compliment, and the latter continued. Let me enjoy the pleasure of playing with you once more in Oxford. Let us play the Ario Pagita. And so saying, he opened the pianoforte and sat down. John was turning to take out the Stradivarius when he remembered that he had never even revealed its existence to Mr. Gaskell, and that if he now produced it, an explanation must follow. In a moment his mood changed, and with less geniality, he excused himself somewhat awkwardly from complying with the request, saying that he was fatigued. Mr. Gaskell was evidently hurt at his friend's altered manner, and without renewing his petition, rose at once from the pianoforte, and after a little forced conversation took his departure. On leaving, he shook my brother by the hand, wished him all prosperity in his marriage and afterlife, and said, do not entirely forget your old comrade, and remember that if at any time you should stand in need of a true friend, you know where to find him. John heard his footsteps echoing down the passage, and made a half-involuntary motion towards the door, as if to call him back, but did not do so. Though he thought over his last words, then, and on subsequent occasion. End of chapter 9